0: Share information in ways that are across greater... As we become an algorithmically run society and influence... So, you know, one of the big things about behavioral economics... Because actually women get the most extreme forms of... of. So China is a country that... Manufacturing jobs, the optimizations... Whenever you see something...
1: I think there's only a few... I feel like my whole career has been a journey.
0: Live from the company amphitheater overlooking Grand Central Station... I'm Nick Weinberg, and welcome to Company Conversations. Here, we share stories from the tech pioneers, best-selling authors, and world leaders who come through our doors to open up about their journeys, breakthroughs, and latest work. Each month, we broadcast a new conversation from the archive of our in-person series, recorded right here in the heart of Manhattan. These in-depth, nuanced, and personal conversations offer new perspectives that help us understand the modern world and our place within it. From our hard drive to your headphones, this is Company Conversations. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. Let's take a step back. Um, the word innovation, if you Google it, you will read about innovation departments within companies, innovative technology, uh, innovative solutions. Innovation, as you say, is one of the most important events that happens um, today and you know previously, of course, but it's also one of the most overused words. How do you define the word innovation?
1: Well, I think it's a, a product or a practice that, as it were, goes viral, that that, that catches on in the world. That's the secret of uh, uh, innovation, is that it must be something that people take up, people adopt, and that is popular with the consumer. Um, so it's, we're, we're not talking about producing the original prototype. Uh, we're talking about Developing and and th- by the way, this enables me to include the the endless improvements in things that don't mean uh, that you're actually doing something brand new for the first time. You're just making something a little better and often making it cheaper. One of the great stories of innovation is driving down the cost of something.
0: Right, and Moore's law, right.
1: Moore's Law is a beautiful example of innovation, and it's beautiful, and a beautiful example of the incremental and gradual nature of innovation. I think we've been a little transfixed by the concept of disruptive and breakthrough innovation. Actually, most innovation, even the breakthrough stuff, when you examine it closely, is surprisingly incremental and
0: gradual. There are a number of people who use the words innovation and invention um, interchangeably, can you tell us the difference between an innovation and an invention, an innovator and an inventor? What's the difference there?
1: Yeah, well, I think um, the, uh, Thomas Edison said innovation, sorry, he said invention is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration and I think that quite nicely captures the difference between the words invention and innovation innovation wasn't much of a word in his day so he didn't use it but I think of Edison as an inventor sorry as an innovator I'm getting in a muddle here Um, (laughs) because uh, because he didn't really pretend to be the person who produced the first prototype he didn't do the first light bulb but he did make the best most reliable light bulb and he did so by experimenting with 5,000 different materials from plants until he figured that Japanese bamboo was the best for making the filament uh, of a light bulb. There's a nice story that Charles Towns, the inventor of the laser, tells uh, about a beaver and a rabbit looking at the Hoover Dam. And the beaver is saying to the rabbit, no, I didn't make it, but it's based on an idea of mine. And I think that quite nicely captures the difference between the inventor and the, and the innovator. Uh, the inventor is the beaver who comes up with the idea of the dam, but there's an awful lot of work that goes into turning an invention into something practical and affordable and reliable and available to everybody. And that's the process of innovation.
0: Right, and I think it's really interesting. You talk about it being kind of building on inventions, right? It's rolling it out, it's the recombination of a number of things that ultimately brings a product to market, uh, turns an invention into an innovation. So let's dive into the innovation process. One of the core arguments uh, within this book and in general around innovation is that you say we're looking at it incorrectly, that it's not really a top-down approach from, you know, that's being executed, you know, a master plan being executed but really it's a bottom-up process that comes from the exchange of ideas um, sprinkled with a little bit of chance. Can you talk to us about um, what that means and some of the more salient modern-day examples?
1: Yeah. Well, um, rather than someone setting out and planning to develop something and getting there in one fell swoop, what really counts is the ability to, inch by inch put together ideas from different directions um, uh, and often change direction halfway through. So the inventors of Kevlar and Teflon were both looking for something else when they came up with it. Uh, The inventors of the aeroplane are a very nice controlled experiment in how to do this because there were two of them or rather sorry there are three because there's two Wright brothers and then there's Samuel Langley and they, were, they both uh, developed an aeroplane in December 1903, and one worked and the other didn't. Uh, and the reason Langley's one didn't work is because he'd done it in secret, and he'd done it all at once, uh, and he'd uh, uh, executed a plan from the beginning, whereas the Wright brothers had, over several years, um, studied and developed all the incremental parts of the technology that they needed, Talking to lots of people as they did so, communicating and corresponding with the the, the builders of gliders and other things all around the world until they uh, and, until they really had a. Uh, all the the ingredients to put together. So they saw it as a much more gradual, much more uh, incremental and much more collaborative process. And that was much more successful than the um, genius going off into his ivory tower and coming up with the right solution process. So I think uh, that's a a really nice example uh, of of the differences between them. But if you think about even something as basic as the computer, Mm -hmm. the computer was invented in the last century, we can agree on that. And it was, uh, we know, it was in full public view, you know, there's no great secrecy. Well, I mean, there was wartime secrecy, but, you know, we know the history of the computer. And yet it's impossible to name the inventor of the computer. I mean, it's, it's even impossible to name the first computer. I mean, Walter Isaacson makes the point that it's probably the ENIAC in Philadelphia in the 1940s. But, you know, it lacked key features that uh, it didn't have stored programs for example um that are key features of a computer so that's a good example of something although we know the history very well actually when you come down to it it doesn't make sense to talk about it as an invention created by one person who happened to be very clever
0: and we like to think of these stories though right as humans we are we love storytelling um across industries and so when we look at these inventions we tend to look and try to find that one person who's responsible for all of it kind of thing. Um,
1: Yeah. And, and, and that gave me a bit of a, um, problem in writing this book because I wanted to write stories that people would enjoy reading. And of course, the way to tell those stories is often biographical. You know, you right. talk about the the inventors and what happened to them and how they got into disputes with each other and uh, how, uh, you know, they nearly failed and then they succeeded and all, that, you know, all the human drama and they fell in love along the way and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and in doing so, I have to keep reminding myself and the reader that although this is uh, fun to read about, you mustn't w- walk away from the feeling that this one hero did it all on his own. He just happens to be the life where it sort of, um, where it sort of came together. So, and there are some very lively and extraordinary characters involved in, in, uh, innovation, but, um, uh, the, the, there are also people like Gordon Moore, the person who, uh, invented Moore's law who's an absolutely central innovator in the story of the transistor and the integrated circuit and computing in general and so the whole Silicon Valley story Um, uh, and yet it's everything he did was gradual everything he did was collaborative you know it it's not a story of um, uh, his genius it's a story of him being there and being part of the the conversation and that of course is beautifully summarized in Moore's law itself it's this extraordinarily gradual thing Um, uh, in fact if you if you extrapolate Moore's law backwards into technologies that precede the integrated circuit and the transistor, Uh it's still just as gradual. There isn't a a, a step change when you invent the transistor or the integrated circuit um, in terms of the the availability and and cost of computing power. Um, So uh, that's a nice example of how biography helps, but it isn't the whole story.
0: So let's jump into some of these innovations. Um, For this book, you... Researched and learned about hundreds of stories from innovations from steam engines to search engines from vaccines to toilets What are some of the consistent themes or general lessons you've seen? I know that you call them like the essentials innovation What do those look like?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, uh the, there are lots of features i 've already mentioned that it 's a sort of gradual incremental process that you can 't invent one thing till you 've invented the other you can 't right. invent the search engine until you 've invented the uh, the internet for example um, it 's a recombinant process and this is very important because it 's a very close parallel with Uh, natural selection by evolution Uh, and that what what i mean by that is that most innovations are actually people taking existing technologies and combining them in new ways um they're not a matter of people uh developing wholly new materials or wholly new devices um the first motor cars look like the consequence of a uh, locomotive meeting a horse carriage around the back of a bicycle shed and having illicit relations, if you like. Um, and then it's only later that the motor car sort of takes its modern form, doesn't have to try and look like one of these ancestors. So it's an evolutionary process. It, it shows descent with modification, just like uh, biological evolution. <clears throat> And just as that example would tell you, it's terribly important that there's trial and error. Right. Um, it, again and again, this came across from modern examples like Jeff Bezos describing the rise of Amazon uh, to uh, ancient examples to Edison and people like that. that the, 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 the key ingredient is to keep trying different things, not to have one plan and stick to it. Um, trial and error was very very important and error was very important you know you have to get you have to be prepared to get things wrong again it was Edison who said uh, I haven't failed I've just found 50,000 ways that don't work (laughs) um, which is quite a nice way of putting it I think Um, so uh, uh, there's a lovely story about uh, the invention of the post-it note at 3m in I think the 1970s probably and it was uh, uh, some, they were looking for a permanent glue that would work with paper, okay, and they failed. They came up with a temporary glue that worked with paper, <laughs> and um, uh, then they were, they, they were going to throw this out, and one of them, a guy called Art Fry, said, hang on a minute, this is just what I'm looking for. I'm off to choir practice shortly, and I always need to slip bits of paper into my uh, um, hymn book to keep my place. And I don't like to damage the pages of the hymn book, so I don't want to put glue on the paper, but this stuff's fine. So he cut up some bits of yellow paper, and he put this stuff on the back, and the post-it note was born. But he, Art Fry, was always a great emphasizer of the importance of trial and error. He said you have to try 5,000 experiments before one works.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So a follow-up question to this, because you are an innovation, I I would say an innovation expert based on, all of the knowledge you've gathered for the for this book um
1: yeah but i've never innovated anything myself unless it's the book so um <laughs> i i'm a bit of a fraud in that sense i'm i'm not sadly a, a tinkerer gadget maker i wish i was
0: there's always time to start um innovations run the gamut right uh the spectrum you have more low-tech innovations like language you have higher tech innovations like you know artificial intelligence and you know geoengineering a climate and things like that are these lessons that you talk about consistent across low-tech and high-tech innovations
1: yes i think they are i think it's it's really intriguing actually that that you can be talking about lasers and quantum computers or, or you can be talking about corrugated iron and toilets uh, and uh or you can be talking about things that don't even physically exist like words um or uh the number zero i have a section in the book on the on zero um uh, and it's much the same story it's a story of borrowing a story of cross-fertilization a story of trial and error a story of um uh, gradu- gradual development, a story of recombination, a story of slow development followed by sudden takeoff. I think this is another feature that I find so fascinating. Uh, I credit this to a guy called Roy Amara in Silicon Valley in the 1960s, who said that we uh, overestimate the impact of a new technology in the short run, but we underestimate it in the long run. And I think that's so true when you think about things like the internet you know around the year 2000 there were a lot of people probably including me saying you know this internet thing it's overrated it's just not delivering what we want e-commerce is never going to take off uh, all the all the um, dot com companies have gone bust 20 years later i don't think we're saying that right. so that that seems to be a sort of s-shaped curve that that happens with innovations that that they they're very slow and disappointing in the, in the early stage and then they 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 truly suddenly uh, change the world
0: and i think when you think of innovation a lot of them are overlooked um, specifically i think some of the more low-tech innovations that still have tremendous impact i can't remember the last time i said out loud you know uh, thank god for language right you just you know you just take it for granted you know, i can remember saying thank god for zoom thank God for the internet, you know, I wouldn't be able to, 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 to work without it. And so you share a story within the book that's a really impactful example of a more low-tech innovation. You talk about, I think it's in the early 2000s, maybe it was 2003, 2006, um, there was the introduction of insecticide in mosquito nets. And there was these studies done that I believe uh, showed like how much impact just that simple addition of insecticide into a net could be, and now that counts for I don't know seventy percent of lives saved due to malaria. In it's a simple innovation, massive impact in the day and age where we're talking about AI and these moonshots. Do you think that? Um, can you talk about the importance of low-tech innovations?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that uh, mosquito net example because. Uh, it's been a massive lifesaver. I mean, malaria mortality was increasing up until the year 2003. Yeah, it's been decreasing rapidly since it's about halved in the current century. Um, uh, that means millions of lives saved. And the main technology that's done that is a mosquito net, but not just any mosquito net. The big breakthrough was this idea of putting a little bit of insecticide uh, on a mosquito net. And um, uh, that's high-tech in the sense that the the insecticide is a high-tech product but it's not really high-tech in any other sense it's a very cheap uh, d- thing that you're producing and it ca- so i i wanted to trace the origin of this you know who had the first idea and how did they show that it was a good idea and how did they persuade the gates foundation to back it and so on uh, and i traced it back to an experiment in burkina faso in Uh, 1983 so quite a long time before um where some french and vietnamese scientists and burkina Faso colleagues uh did uh this very neat experiment they had 36 huts all designed to trap mosquitoes in uh, and they made 36 volunteers sleep in these huts for five months and um uh, they collected every mosquito that tried to get into the huts and uh, each of the huts had a net in it it was either um uh in impregnated with insecticide or not and it was either torn with holes in it or not and so I asked one of the French scientists why was this you know why, why do you want to tear holes in a mosquito now that seems crazy right. uh, and he said well the point is the wear and tear of everyday life will mean that they often end up with holes in it so we wanted to know does that make them useless immediately or does it help or does, does it make very little difference if they've got um insecticide on them and it turns out that, that, that the insecticide is a huge deterrent to the mosquitoes as well as lethal to them if they land on it and, and taste it um so uh, suddenly here was a way of defeating malaria that that was going to work much better than spraying insecticides in the landscape uh, and much better than um uh Anti-malarial drugs to which there's resistance and so on. So it's a nice example of a relatively low-tech thing that nobody's made any money out of, but that has changed the world pretty dramatically. But I talk in that same chapter about things like corrugated iron, about things like toilets, about things like container shipping, but also restaurant menus. When you think about it, the purest example you can think of is food innovation. You know, is the fact that you go to restaurants and 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 they they serve you new dishes. Um, uh, new combinations of food. They they're, they're into recombination big time. So much so they're going to run out of combinations at some stage. <laughs> I suspect. You know, Japanese fusion fused with Ethiopian food. I haven't had that <laughs> yet, but it but it it's only a matter of time. I'm sure. Um, uh, and and you know, it turns out once you dig into this, restaurants have R and D departments. You know, <laughs> and they you know they actually set aside time to do experiments, to, to find new things that'll work. Uh, and then they, you know, they sometimes go a bit overboard and, and do food that, you know, looks and sounds amazing, but isn't actually particularly good to eat. Um, uh, but you can charge a lot for it. Um, and then, of course, you can innovate in the other direction of making food more convenient. And I tell the story of the McDonald's um, uh, franchise, you know, which is a, a very nice example of somebody, Ray Kroc, taking a, an invention which was the sort of um, the, 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 the uh, um, hand-wrapped uh, burger um, and turning it into an innovation that changed the world.
0: And so would you say that low-packed innovations have just as much impact on the world as... Yes. Um, I,
1: th- I, th- I think we make a mistake if we think that the word innovation necessarily means high tech and digital. Um, uh, it, quite often has recently because a lot of the low-tech stuff that's changed our lives like toilets came along quite a long time ago but you know think about the fact that we are currently fighting an epidemic with um, some pretty medieval approaches like quarantine and social distancing uh, and closing the theaters and so on. And we are innovating in all sorts of low-tech... I mean, sure, we're doing high-tech innovation vaccines and antiviral drugs and so on, but we're also doing low-tech innovations like, you know, uh, just new habits. Not, I suspect we probably won't go back to shaking hands after this, um, like, uh, you know, Perspex screens in, in stores and things like that. Uh, so I, uh, I think it's important not to underestimate the low-tech stuff uh, that goes on all the time.
0: It seems to me that there's an inherent relationship between profit and innovation. And the ones that are less profitable don't seem to get kind of the limelight. Um, there's been a shift in the zeitgeist, in the business zeitgeist over the past you know, 20 years or so, where businesses can now be successful, but also do good. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, it's not just shareholder value that's taken into mind, but stakeholder value. I think um, Ray Anderson may be one of the first people I heard about. He's the inventor of the floor carpeting. Um, you know, hundred percent. Do you remember Ray Ray Anderson? No, I don't think I do. But uh, that sounds a great story. Floor, floor carpeting. There are these textiles that. It's not, oh yes. Right. It's not yes. one. Yes. To replace and it was running on a hundred percent renewables. They were making a ton of money. Um, but this is becoming more and more important for younger companies to be thinking about their impact um, and what they're building. So my question to you is: How would you suggest? How how can we encourage more companies to be thinking about impact as well as profit? Hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a really good question, um, and uh, the, the, the 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 way to do it, I think, is to focus rigorously and relentlessly on what customers actually want because if if people uh, uh, you know you you can't go to the market and say i've got a device here that you should want uh, and expect people to agree with you, but if you go to the market with something that really does deliver genuine benefits to people and improves their lives, and or in the case of the mosquito net, saves their lives, or you know the whooping cough vaccine that these two wonderful women in Michigan, uh, Pearl Kendrick and Grace Eldering, invented in the in the 1930s, you know they did that in their spare time. They never made a penny out of it. Um, uh, they uh, changed the lives of kids all over America and the rest of the world. So. Uh, you know, if you sat down and said to a poor family in Michigan in 1932, what would you really want? Quite high on the list would be for my child not to, not to die of whooping cough. It was one of the biggest killers in the US at the time. Um, uh, and so let's go out and solve that problem. Um, and uh, that's sort of a, a good example, therefore, of... Thinking about, as you say, the stakeholders, particularly the consumer, um, if that's the right word <laughs> in this context, it probably isn't the right word in this context. So, um, but I don't think, apart from that, that it's t- that it's important to get too hung up on whether or not uh, you're aiming to make a profit or not. I mean, the Google guys were very ideological, not, that's the wrong word, idealistic uh, to start with. Um, Uh, And they they weren't thinking about making money uh, and they weren't thinking about taking advertising, uh, but it gradually became clear to them that they could, but they didn't feel they were abandoning their ideals, they felt they were um, providing this incredible service for us all as we navigated the Internet. Um, and the, the profit they were making was going back into improving the product and develop, delivering new products. And I think that's true. Uh, I think, you know, uh, great innovators drive down the cost of some of, of fulfilling a need in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get rich in the process, wow. you know, Malcolm McLean, the inventor of container shipping. Um, he's not the only one, but he's a key figure in the story. He, uh, uh, throughout the '50s, '60s, and '70s, you know, he relentlessly pushed this this concept that instead of uh, unloading and and reloading a ship in a port, uh, you actually bring pre-packed containers from the factory and stick them on the ship, and it takes um, uh, much less time to load the ship, and so that you dramatically cut costs. Was he's responsible more than anyone else? I would say for the growth of global trade, for the idea that, you know, you get stuff from China or or Japan, um, rather than have it made uh, nearby where you live. Um, And has therefore cut the cost of living for millions of people. You could also say he's responsible, therefore, for some of the job losses that go with that kind of thing. But then he's also responsible for the job creation that goes with that thing. And one of the interesting features of that story is the huge resistance by the uh, the docker's unions the the longshoremen's unions to his innovation but then they switched switch tack because they realized that actually as the part of what he was delivering was a much much safer life you know um, it, the accidents were frequent uh, and it was a crippling and dangerous um, profession, uh, and it became better paid and much safer, and the, the hours became more reasonable as a result of the container shipping. Sure, there were less jobs to start with, but soon trade grew, and then there were just as many jobs, and they were better jobs. Right.
0: So a lot of people argue that a lot of the innovation today specifically is coming from startups. Can you talk about the the role of startups in the innovation ecosystem? I know, you know uh, big companies get Bad reputations for innovation—that they're slow, they're dinosaurs. Can you just talk about, I guess, whether or not um, big corporations aren't getting the credit that they deserve, and what's, you know, how startups contribute to this entire innovation ecosystem?
1: On the whole, I think the cliche is true that big companies are bad at innovation. Um, if you look at what happened to Kodak, uh, or indeed Nokia, um, you know, Kodak was biggest film company in the world it knew what was coming because it had invented digital photography itself right. but it didn't develop it because it thought it wasn't a very good product and it didn't like the idea of threatening its own uh industry it doesn't didn't want to cannibalize its own business um as it were but it was so as a result it was taken by surprise and it was blown uh, to smithereens by the invention of digital photography um nokia became the biggest mobile phone company in the world. Uh, Very innovative, very adventurous, very exciting, spending more on R&D than the rest of the mobile phone industry put together at one point. But that didn't save it, because what happened to Nokia was that it became so invested in voice that it didn't see data coming. Um, And uh, it, again, was reluctant to cannibalize its own business in, in switching to data. It ended up being sold for a Tiny fraction of its previous value uh, um, to to someone else. So so on the whole, I don't come to praise big companies. They they tend to buy in innovative stuff. The pharmaceutical industry relies heavily on smaller biotech companies these days uh, for innovation. Um, very occasionally, you find a good example of a big company that that does keep its innovation engine purring. Uh, Procter & Gamble did a a, a u-turn at one point and said it's no good just having our own research department what we need to do is go out and harvest ideas from outside the company so they went out for an open innovation system and that's been fairly successful for them and then there are companies like uh, Google that set up sort of skunk works Lockheed Martin of course famously set up the original skunk works i.e. a division which is full of you know guys who don't wear suits and uh, have weird ideas and uh, have some money to try them out and things like that. And some of these work for a while. And Google X is, is producing quite a lot of interesting stuff. Right. Um, uh, it's also producing some duds like Google Glass, which didn't catch okay.
0: on. Um, I remember putting those on and thinking they were the coolest things ever. You did? Well, yeah. We had Sent us one at the office and I took like a photo. I still have it.
1: Well it's very interesting it's it you know it might have caught on um it was relatively expensive people found it privacy invading um they found it a bit spooky they didn't quite see the point of it, it for some reason it, it it went away it may come back in in some form um Amazon's an interesting case of a company that has remained innovative uh, and I once asked Jeff Bezos why that is and one of the answers he gave was that uh, he operates a sort of reverse veto system inside the company so that if there's an idea from a maverick in the company uh, he has to get to hear about it even if most of his managers think it's a bad idea uh, in other words you know he, good good ideas can't be voted down just because they're minority ideas and i think that's quite important because an awful lot of this stuff uh, comes from uh, comes from mavericks so if you if you go back and look at the where the big dynamic transformative changes come from uh, in uh, any kind of technology. It's nearly always from the startups. So they are terribly important. To have a a vigorous, fertile startup ecosystem is a crucial part of being the innovative part of the world.
0: And when we talk about funding for startups, right, the traditional model today is to raise venture capital dollars. But when you take venture capital money, you are – signing up to meet certain, you know, benchmarks, milestones, things like that. And so what you've seen is the rise of some really incredible companies and the rise of some not so incredible companies because they had that funding from venture capital. But you've also seen the demise of many great companies because they weren't able to reach that Series A milestone, that Series B milestone, so they've gone under. Um, and they could have been viable businesses at $50 million instead of, you know, you know that VC wanting them to be a unicorn at $1 billion. So as a whole, would you say that venture capital is a net positive for innovation or a net negative?
1: It's a really good question and one that isn't quite as easy to answer as I would have expected it to be. Uh, I mean, living in the UK, we're well aware of the problem that it's quite Possible to have an economy that is generating a lot of ideas a lot of research a lot of um, uh, uh, Ivory tower university academic stuff, but not very good at turning that into uh, Companies, you know, um, it's a it's a constant um, uh, uh, Regret in Europe that we haven't been able to spawn a digital giant to, to rival Amazon or Google or or the Chinese equivalents um, uh, anywhere in Europe um, and that's often because the venture capital system just doesn't quite help small startups across what we call the valley of death, um, where they go from being a sort of ten man operation to being a five hundred person right. operation um and uh, you, you know, the, the capital dries up. The demands of the venture capitalists are too short term. Uh, they bail out too quickly. They sell the company to Google or Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, DeepMind is a very nice example of a very innovative artificial intelligence company based in London um, that was eventually bought by Google for a billion dollars or so and is is, is Google's biggest uh, AI thing, but that you know, it, it it just didn't have the backing to go it alone, um, and I think that is a a huge problem everywhere, including of course in Silicon Valley. Um, but of course, one thing that's changed in the digital world compared with um, twenty, thirty years ago is that quite often the amount of capital you need uh, to to start a, a a business, an online business, isn't that great. You know, I mean, Facebook didn't need that much money compared with, say, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft, you know, because they didn't need to build a factory to the same extent. Okay.
0: Um, uh, they need to pay for web service space, which is quite expensive, and, you know, uh, servers yes. like that, maybe not as quite as expensive as building a factory, but there still are some heavy costs
1: yes indeed uh no that that 's absolutely true but but uh you know for biotech companies the, the 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 puzzle is why biotechnology has never really managed to sort of become to generate the giant drug discovery businesses um, uh, and if you look at the numbers, you can argue that the money invested in biotechnology is about equal to the money that's come out of biotechnology in other words you know you're still pouring money in you're getting results out the other end but you're not you're not suddenly making the great breakthroughs and that's because it takes a billion dollars to test a drug to the point where it's effective and safe Um, and for that you need to get the, the biotech company needs to get in bed with a with a big Pharmaceutical uh, company—it's often beyond the capabilities of of venture capital funds. I mean, on the whole, yes, you do need venture capital. You know, whether whether you're talking about the Italian city states in 1400 or or Victorian England in 1850, um, the 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 key guys needed backing from chums with lots of money. You know, um, angel investors were always a big part of the story, um, and they still are. But I would say it's the It's the angels that are more important, actually, than the the publicly traded venture capital funds. They get too cautious.
0: I love the title you just gave, VCs. VCs, chums with lots of money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's about right, isn't it?
0: Um, I have a couple more questions, and then I do want to get to audience questions. So if you do have questions, please drop them into the Q&A function now. Um, I've seen a few come in, so we'll get to them uh, very shortly. Um, I'm going to skip one here, but in the, the subtitle of your book was really interesting to me. It says, and why it flourishes in freedom, innovation and why it flourishes in freedom. Obviously, the conditions of uh, need to be correct. You know, The political conditions factor into innovation and not all innovation is created equal. So, for example, can you talk a little more about, I know you mentioned China a little earlier, the difference that. In innovation that you're seeing in china versus the innovation you're seeing in a country like the united states mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah it's a very good question um i uh the, the 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 subtitle really came about after i'd written the book when i looked back on what i'd written and i thought you know what the common theme here is freedom you know the 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 what the the one thing that all you always need is for people to be free to experiment free to invest free to profit uh, free to to um, uh, not have the uh, business stolen from you you know the, 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 that 's actually the the, the, secret, the, the, L, the the key ingredient of the secret source uh, of innovation so how come then an unfree country like China can end up so innovative at the end of this process because because before then um, just as you do you find startups running rings around big companies so you find small countries running rings around big com- countries quite often so the empires are really bad at innovation you know the ming empire the uh, uh, ottoman empire you know th- these are huge centralized bureaucracies that 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 try and tell um merchants and entrepreneurs exactly what they do every five minutes and as a result they don't get much innovation and they suppress it you know the ottoman empire banned printing for several centuries um uh, so, how come, and, and America, by the way, is quite a nice exception to that rule, because America from the outside looks like an empire, a great big country run from Washington, but you know perfectly well that's not true. It's a series of of, of city-states, one called California, one called New York, and lots in between, uh, and uh, they have different rules, and you heard only... A couple of weeks ago, Elon Musk was threatening to leave California because he didn't like the, their policy on lockdown, I think it was, and he was going to go to Texas. That's crucial. You know, lots of European entrepreneurs in, in throughout the centuries did that. They said, I don't like what's happening in the, the small German state. I am in. Mean, I'm going to the next one. Gutenberg did that. Lots of people went from uh, France to England and vice versa and so on. So being fragmented was was helpful. So how come China, which is a unified, centralized, dirigiste, bureaucratic, authoritarian country, is now leading the world in innovation? Because I think it is. I mean, I think if you go and look at what Chinese consumers are doing, going beyond credit cards and cash and into all sorts of uh, e- e-commerce, um, it's, they're not just catching up with the rest of the world. They're way ahead of it. Um, uh, and my answer is that actually it, isn't that, it is still quite free as long as you don't uh, annoy the Communist Party. In other words, at a certain level, you know, political innovation is out, clearly. You know, you can't start a new political party in China. Uh, But if you want to start a widget manufacturer and you want to build a plant and make this new widget, um, you don't have that many bureaucrats and beadles and officials who you have to ask permission from. It's actually very permissionless down at that level in the undergrowth of where the entrepreneurs operate. but do I think that this situation is sustainable where the world's most innovative economy is also an increasingly authoritarian regime? No, I don't. And I, don't, I think something's going to have to give there. Either we're going to have to see a democratic revolution in China uh, or the, um, the bushfire will move on. It'll go to another place, possibly India, which has a lot of things going for it, um, but it also has bad infrastructure too much uh, regulatory bureaucracy and so on you know but it's uh, but it's got a lot of um, education and uh, sort of spontaneous order and you know relative freedom to start businesses um, uh, so um, uh, that's my feeling on China is that it it's time is in the spotlight now but if it persists in being a top-down dirigist regime that tries to tell us what innovations we can have and which we can't, it won't last.
0: What's fascinating to me is, you know, we hosted, I believe, a year and a half ago, Kai-Fu Lee, uh, incredible uh, mind, um, specifically within the field of AI, and we, were, we asked him the question about what is a day in the life of um, someone in China versus the US, the average day. And in terms of innovation, everything in China is done through one app. Really, I mean, they're yes, absolutely all, all concentrate the way you pay your friends, the way you order your meals, the way you order your cars, um, things like that. In the US, you know, you go to Venmo or PayPal to you know shoot money to your friend, or the Cash app, which is now popular. Uh, social media is all you know fragmented. So that to me is really interesting. Is how long can that go with China? Um, with one kind of company dominating everything, owning everything in a way.
1: Yeah, now that 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 feels like a, 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 it's heading for a Ming Empire type um, fossilization. I mean, it's you know it's working fantastically well at the moment, but it right. it, it uh, that that will turn into a conservative company. The owner of that app.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to skip one more question, ask you a last question, and then we always end on rapid fire. Um, quick, quick questions, quick answers. answers. The last question I have uh, for you is your book, uh, the rational optimist came out 10 years ago. You gave a fantastic Ted talk that was related to it. Do you can still consider yourself a rational optimist 10 years later, especially in a world that seems to be crumbling climate change, COVID-19, things like that?
1: Uh, Yes, I do. And the reason is because during that 10 years, I've gone around talking about the book and I've been asked that very question every time. There's always been a different reason for it: the financial crisis, the war in Ukraine, the war in Syria, climate change, the euro crisis, whatever it might be. You know, surely you can't still be an optimist when you look at what's happening in the news at the moment. Uh, and there's a there's a bias here towards what makes news, which is bad news. So during that ten years, there's been endless bad news stories. There's been a lot of bad news, and yet um, also during that ten years, the average Ethiopian has doubled his, his income. Right. That's amazing when you think about it. You know, that's incredible. Uh, people, particularly in the poorer parts of the world, have got rich amazingly rapidly. There's been a decline in violence despite the wars in Syria and elsewhere. There's been a, a, an improvement in air quality in most parts of the world, et cetera, et cetera, whatever measure you want to take. So there's all sorts of things still going in the right direction. And the engine of that is a kind of bottom-up, under-the-radar type you know, exchange and specialization, innovation, those kind of things. You just can't put that genie back in the bottle. So we will get through COVID-19. We will put the world economy back together, I think, I hope. Of course, there's a risk there. And I did say, by the way, in The Rational Optimist, a lot is going to go wrong in this century. Don't get me wrong. And that might include uh, devastating flu pandemics, I said. So, you know, I did, did have the just enough in there to to, to, to to get me off the hook um, but uh, I, I am worried about whether we can recover the free global trading system that is vital to our health uh, as a world and whether we can get through this period without not only a bad pandemic killing lots of people but also possibly hostilities breaking out as a result of the Aftermath of it, or something like that. Uh, I hope not, and I um, think not. I expect not.
0: Well, thank you for that. For me, you know, I I also am an optimist. Where I kind of draw the line, and and less optimistic is uh, we hosted Christiana Figueres as well uh, back in February, and she painted two pictures of the world in 2050. One where we don't curb our emissions, and one where we are able to curb our emissions. And so the difference to me between a financial crisis or a war is that doesn't end the world as a whole. Climate change literally could make it a place that's unhabitable.
1: Yeah, I, do, I don't agree with that. Because if you look at the UN projections, um, they, they, they all have the world getting richer for the whole of this century. They just have the ones where we don't control emissions have it getting richer less fast. I mean, you know, literally the difference is between 450% as rich as today in 2100 and 430% as rich as today in 2100. Now, it's possible we could find some tipping point along the way where everything goes terribly wrong, and that's what the sort of extreme version of, of climate concern suggests. But actually, most climate scientists don't see that. They see uh, up until two degrees of warming, um, no net net harm plenty of harm but no net harm Uh, and after that gradually an increasing net harm which could get very worrying but there's quite a range of outcomes in there and i'm pretty sure technology will give us uh, a a way of reducing emissions before we get to the end of this century
0: so i'm inviting you back sometime in the future to have a debate about this yes Uh, so we're going to jump into rapid fire then get to audience questions so matt remember Quick questions, quick answers. A lot of what you're talking about in the book is focused on the stories of innovation. What are some of the characteristics of innovators across the stories that you found?
1: Um, They were maverick, uh, unreasonable, ambitious, determined, and incredibly hardworking.
0: Perfect. Greatest innovator of all time and why?
1: Probably Thomas Edison. I kept coming back to him. Um, the main reason was because he set out to make innovation as a product. He set up an innovation factory.
0: Um, what is the most hyped, overhyped innovation today?
1: Huh. Um, 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 uh, da da. da. It, it, I've got my mind's gone blank. Move on to another question. But there are lots. Oh yeah, Hyperloop. Hyperloop. Okay.
0: Hyperloop is over, overrated, overhyped. Yeah, the
1: idea, the idea that we, we can put uh, mag- maglev trains in, in tubes or tunnels and in vacuums, it's been tried again and again. It's bound to be extremely expensive and it's never going to work. Uh, it's far better using airplanes or, or, um, or ordinary trains.
0: So we're bringing you back for another interview with Elon Musk. You guys can take uh, yeah. that. Um, what, is, what industry is the most need of innovation?
1: Um, uh, right now, vaccines.
0: Vaccines. And what does the world look like to you in 2050?
1: Well, I'll be uh, 92 years old. And one of the things that uh, the world will be like is that it'll be much nicer for 92-year-olds. Technology will have have made uh, the end of life a much more pleasant
0: experience. Thanks for listening to Company Conversations. For more, visit us at companyventures.co or at companyventures on Twitter to stay up to date.